Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 25th, 2020. This is episode 2718, and it is called 20 Skills and Actions You Really Need for the Coming Future. Um, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure that when you listen to this, you'll think, I can't believe he left out. Fill in the blank. Well, it's a one to one and a half hour podcast most days. And if I did all the things that I think are important for you to either do or learn or consider for the coming decade of flux that we're entering right now, 2020 to 2030, I don't know that I would ever leave from behind the microphone today. And I would probably pass out from exhaustion somewhere about midnight with no voice left. And I don't want to do that because tomorrow... Um, I'm not decided yet whether you're going to have a rewind show or just a day off. Because I'm taking a day off. I'm going fishing for white bass, hybrids, and stripers. In fact, uh, I am not going fishing. I lied to you a little bit, just a tiny bit. Since I'm going with my friend Omar, fishing guide, from Luck O the Irish Guide Service, I and a good friend of mine we call Hatch are not going fishing. We are going catching That's what we do with Omar. We go catching, and we are going to enjoy ourselves out in the middle of the lake, and we will not be wearing COVID masks riding around in a boat like a bunch of uh, uh, you know, COVID idiots. Anyway, uh, today's show is going to be cool. I think you're going to enjoy it. And I, I, I came up with the idea this morning. I, I was going to do a feedback show, and then I started thinking a lot. I was thinking as I took care of my garden and how much we've done here to make our lives wonderful. I posted a picture um, to all the new social media that I'm on. And it was just a little piece of one garden. Uh, and I have, you know, multiple gardens. And in this garden area, I have four separate gardens in this area. And they're fairly large. And it was just one little, about three square foot of, you know, 200 square foot garden. And I said that, You know, my gardens don't look like a lot of people's gardens. They're kind of haphazard, and, and they look maybe even a little weedy. But what this little piece shows is so much. Right here in this little piece, you see uh, dill, and you see uh, chives, and you see calendula, uh, and you see holzontle, and you see a couple other plants, and all of them, you know, basil, all of them are producing enough seed that I could give away seed to dozens of people to plant their own gardens with and still have enough to plant my garden for several seasons, Well, where these plants will just keep making more. Instead of pesticides in this little garden, there is uh, you know, habitat and spiders and, and, and mantises uh, and other predators like wasps are killing the pest insects that are free to be there, too. That there's food and there's security in this garden, and... There's free mulch that was obtained by simply asking for it from people that shred mulch, you know, that shred trees, that do tree service. And that mulch is rotting into the soil and making like next year's compost. And I'm not doing anything for it. The worms are happy to do all the work for me of turning and improving the quality of the compost. And I get to sit out here and look at this every day. And it's a classroom for my grandchildren. Then I came into the house. And this morning as I was getting all things ready for the show and doing the item of the day and all that, you know, I walked out a few times to my living room and I saw my grandson working on his home on his homeschool stuff from Escalus Academy, doing his lessons. And my wife had gone to get her hair done and taken the granddaughter. So he's by himself and he's just doing it. 
And I watch him finish a lesson and has a mat on the floor that he was laying on and the dog's next to him and he stretches out on the mat and he passes out and goes to sleep for a nap. Fifteen minutes later, he's on his next lesson. A little bit later, I go back out and he's drawing pictures and he's watching you know, videos of these guys doing trick shots in basketball. I ask him, are you done with your work? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, then you do whatever you want for the rest of the day. That was the deal we made. You get your work done and you're free. And, you know, I'm thinking about the, the power of being able to do that. And this kid's nine, if you guys don't know. I thought, I sat and I thought outside a little bit as I watched the fish eat about my recent exodus from the big social media platforms and how while it was giving something up, it's been incredibly liberating. I thought about other decisions that were difficult because they cost me something, whether it's money or friendships, but they were the right decision. And I thought about what really enabled me to build this podcast into what it's become today. And all of that together led up to today's episode. And it led me to another statement that I, I, I wanted to make. And I put this out as well today on, on the new platforms that I'm on. So the way I found success, as simply as I can put it, give and keep giving. If no one wants what you offer, just keep giving more. If you do this, sooner or later, what you give will help others. Then they will take it. After a time when you help enough people find the success find find after I'm sorry after a time when you help enough people you then find the success that you wanted and you realize that simply being who you are and being honest about who that is was all you really needed the only thing that is required is the courage to remain true to what you really believe and the absolute stubbornness to never quit doing it i know this all sounds too simple but every great truth is simple And that really is, it is that simple. All you really need is the courage to remain true to who you really are and the absolute ridiculous stubbornness to keep doing it. But you also need skills and knowledge so that you make good decisions about exactly how you do that, when you do that, what you do, and when you make big changes in your life. So you don't listen to a show like this in one day and then go home and tell your wife, I quit my job because Jack said that my job is a wage slave job and I don't want it anymore. Well, maybe you're not in the place to do that yet. And so that you don't go blindly into the world, there's things that you need to ground yourself with knowledge and skill sets. And that's what led up to today's show. Before we dig into those skills, and I've got 20 of them for you today. Let's remind you guys how you can help support this show by doing business with our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. FSP.org is where you can find out more about them. If you've been thinking that you would like more liberty in your life, go to New Hampshire and be part of the Free State Project where their philosophy is liberty in your lifetime. And right now they're trying to get people to simply visit. Just visit New Hampshire, see what it has to offer. But when you go visit New Hampshire, don't do a vacation like you usually do where you just go somewhere and you don't know anybody. Contact the Free State Project. They'll put you in touch with people, and they will help you make the most of your visit. Maybe you'll find a new home. Next up today is ButcherBox. I mean, guys, I have a lot of sponsors, and I only have one that pays me in product, and that is ButcherBox. And, boy, I am happy to take a big, giant box of amazing meat once a month in return for their sponsorship. And I, I know from my contacts with uh, Daniel over there at ButcherBox that you, there's a lot of you guys 
have done business with ButcherBox. And I, I thank you for it because it helps me with my relationship with my sponsor. It's helped me many times get them to do special deals for the audience because they really value you guys. It's helped me get them to sponsor some of our workshops and things like that. They're just an amazing company with amazing quality meat. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. With that, let's, let's dive headlong into this. Let's start out with a uh, quote. And I really want to set your mindset, even though we're going to talk about things you can do today, I want to set your mindset in the right place for receiving what I have to offer you today, right? And so I, I want the theme of today's show being yourself. Because if you are yourself, then all of the things that I give you, you will make your own, or some of them you may go, I'm not doing that. And that's totally okay. Well, but you said these are 20 things that we really need for the company. Yeah, there's like 5 million things that can help you. I want you to pick and choose things and make them your own. And the only way you can ever do that in life is to truly be who you are and what you are. One of the best quotes I've ever heard on that came from Steve Jobs. He said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. You know, it, what it makes me think of, and it's, it's kind of strange that it does, but is Star Trek and the concept of a holodeck. And the holodeck, I don't think people realize, is a metaphor for in our time and in our lives where we're at, where we don't have that type of technology, it's a metaphor for our dreams. Both our daydreams and our true dreams when we fall asleep at night. There are people that spend their whole life living in their dreams instead of living to achieve their dreams. And because you can fabricate a dream that in a way that's boundless, and that's great because it gives you a place to head towards, Right? It gives you a goal. It gives you a destination if you use it that way. But if you don't, if you use it as something to comfort yourself so that you can just kind of stay where you are and, and it's almost like a drug then that placates you, that, 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 that pacifies you. You can almost live in your dreams instead of living your dream. Those are two very different things. And that's what Jobs was talking about here. Because sometimes when we're living someone else's life, it's not because we're living the way somebody else thinks we should. It's that we're using the fact that we're creating this dream world for ourselves to deny the fact that we're not living the life we truly want to. And maybe we blame somebody else for that. If only I didn't have to or whatever. You don't have to. Everything you do every day is a decision that you make. And if you're living someone else's life, whether it's a fabricated life you've created as a dream world, a, 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 a hollow deck of sorts for yourself... Or if you're actually living for someone else instead of for yourself, you're not being true to who you really are. And that means that no matter how many of these skills and, and, and mindsets and abilities and, and, and things you adopt in your life, you won't find happiness, you won't find stability, you won't become non-brittle. Because you've built a house of cards and you haven't even used cards to create it. You've used holograms of cards. So let's talk about doing things so that we can be resilient in this future that's going to be crazy, absolutely crazy. And in spite of it, we can find that it's full of opportunities for the prepared. That's, that's why I'm doing today's show. I think that if you take some portion of these things and then you add to them and build on them, and you, you make them something that's an active thing rather than a checklist. And what I mean by that is when I give you a skill, you don't just like – do that skill and check it off. It's not like getting a Boy Scout badge where you know you turn to the page in the book and it says you do these things and then you get it all done and either the Scoutmaster or Mom or Dad signs off on it and then that's checked off and you go do the next thing. 
You know, and I know scouts are more like what I'm talking about than 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 what I'm explaining. But like, there's a mindset like that. Like, I did that now, so it's done. Well, if you've done it right, then you carry that skill forward, and it has an impact on everything else you do. But a lot of the things that that you develop as skills, if you really want to get great at them, you have to keep doing them or using them in some way, and you keep working on it. So if we look at firearms, for instance, you know, you can become really proficient at firearms, but if you don't train at all. Those skills, while they're always a base level that you'll have, they'll atrophy. And as we get older and our reflexes and other things go downhill, the training becomes even more important. Until we train to muscle memory where we can act without thinking. We actually can move faster through a drill than we can think the drill. And that's when we've achieved mastery. And the minute we stop working on it, we start declining from mastery. And that's true in everything. And if you can work to a level where you achieve some level of mastery in some plethora of things, not everything I talk about today, not everything I talk about over the years, but in some certain places you can achieve and develop and improve that mastery, then the next 10 years that are going to be difficult also offer immense opportunity. Because whenever there is flux, whenever there is change, when there are problems, when there is pain, there is opportunity. When things are just okay and great and kind of just chug along, you can be successful. But one of my favorite sayings came from a mentor named Frank, Frank Madrin, who was really a great mentor to me when I was a young salesperson. And what he used to say about things like during the dot-com boom and all and, and the run-up to, to it and all the success that we were having in sales, don't get too cocky. Even a turkey can fly in a tornado. That was one of the things that of all the things mentors have told me over the years always stuck with me. It, it's easy to be successful when everybody's successful. But you should be, if you're going to be successful when things are hard, at the time where it's easy, you should be excelling from your peers. You know, if you're a top 10% producer in good times, you'll be a top 2% producer in bad times. You will actually be better when things get harder than you are now because you'll stand out so much from everybody else around you. And so that's where I want to come out with this form today. And I also want to just say something I say in different ways all the time and it bears saying again today. Take some comfort in spite of some of the darkness I've talked about about what's coming in the world because there's the truth. This has all happened before. It will happen again. And because of that, we can know what to expect. Remember the Matrix movie? By the time you get to the end of the trilogy, you find out it's just gone on over and over and over and over and over again. And it was more than just a way to throw up a fake, a head fake at the end and give the, the character Neo a chance to change it by making a different decision for once. It was also a metaphor for history in general. We the, the characters and the sets in the play have changed from, you know, war warmongering tribal types to the more civilized world of like uh, the Roman Empire to modern times. But in the end, it's the same plays repeated over and over and over and over again. It's the same villains and the same heroes. It's the same problems. We think that our problems are so modern and so different, but you know, 
economic collapses, uh, complete disruptions to industries, etc. There's nothing new. There was a time when the salmon in England burned down sawmills. Now, they had miserable jobs. They, these guys would go down in a pit. If you've ever seen a video where you see like two guys cutting down a tree and they have like a huge crosscut saw, each with a handle, and they're pulling it back and forth right, to cut down the trees, um, there was a time when if you wanted to board, like one guy went down in a pit and another guy stood up on the top, and instead of sawing a tree down, they sawed a board out of a log. They sawed the length of the log. And then the sawmen took turns being in the pit, because obviously being in the pit sucked worse than being on the top of the log. Because in the pit you were down there and all the sawdust was falling in your face and it was stinky and nasty down and gross in the pit. So you'd saw one through once and then you'd flip and go the other way and then you'd flip and go the other way and what have you. A miserable job. Nobody really wanted to do it. But eventually somebody figured out, hey, if we take water and it turns a wheel and we can use that wheel to turn a stone and that stone can make wheat into flour, which causes its own problems, by the way, why can't we just take a big blade and stick it on the end of this thing and instead of spinning a piece of stone, it spins a piece of, of metal with teeth in it and then we can just push the log through and let the thing do the work on its own and we can cut a lot more logs a lot faster and not have humans down in the pit. And you would think those humans down in the pit would be happy to not be in the pit. But since they didn't really have another skill, they burned down the sawmills. They rioted because you were taking away their livelihood. Now, did that really make sense or should they have just embraced the change? Was there any way that they were going to stop the mills from beginning to be the way that lumber was created. There was no way that was ever going to happen. And in fact, it's it's ironic that I chose you know this mill methodology for this explanation. These men, literally, the more they fought, the more they were cast into that stone mill and ground up underneath it. The wise sawmen should have seen the opportunity created, the new opportunity in lumber, a, a, a world in which he probably knew better than most people how to use his skill set to achieve something in this world of flux. And that's why I want to give you these skills, some of them very traditional and some of them very modern today. So let's start out. Number one, just remember this old quote, an army marches on its stomach. And that applies to you. And think of your family and your community like an army. Because an army doesn't just go out and destroy the enemy. An army gets things done. Armies are used to build roads. Armies are used to maintain order. Armies are used for lots of things. And that's what you need to do. You need to build roads on in your own community, whether they're actual roads or paths or whether they are network bridges to other people and other resources. So first and foremost, we have to eat. We have to be able to eat. You guys know I've taught you know six primary aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and survival, and that food is the first one. Food, water, right? It keeps going from there. Um, so the first thing I want you to do is come up with at least two ways to grow some food. Now, if you've already done that, great. Maybe you, you fine-tune that and get a little bit better and a little bit more systems-orientated with it. But what I mean by two methods is there should be two ways in which you're able to produce some of your own food. So, for instance, one would be plain old regular gardening. Another one could be aquaponics or hydroponics. That would be one way. Or one could be regular old gardening, and one could be wicking beds. 
One could be greenhouse growing and one could be outdoor growing. One could be indoor growing and one could be outdoor. I, I don't care how. And it doesn't necessarily have to be growing vegetables. One could be growing fish and one could be growing vegetables. Does that make aquaponics holistic so that it's two? Probably not. I don't really want you to think that way because you'll never grow enough fish in an aquaponics system to get enough of a meat yield to really be able to rely on it. So it might be it. Like I'm doing aquaculture in my bigger ponds. You know, I can produce a couple hundred fish a year if I want to pretty easily. And I'm not doing it in a way where if the plant and the fish become unbalanced, then all the fish die. Or all the plants get weak and sick. They are independent of each other in most instances. And by having your, your vegetation growing in multiple locations, you have resiliency and redundancy. So come up with at least two ways to grow food. And if I, if I may suggest this, Some simple form of indoor hydroponics is probably one of the things that most people should do at some point. You should probably do that at some point in your life to determine if it's right for you. And you can start very simple with a few grow lights and some ball jars and grow some lettuce and other greens. I mean, that's the place to start. You can find somewhere in your house, I guarantee you right now, a shelf or something with enough clearance that you can just start growing some of your own food. And it will shock you how easy and productive it is. And it'll shock you how easy it is to teach to others. <clears throat> um, the next thing, and we're still talking about feeding ourselves right now, come up with a handful of plants that you can self-replicate. I thought about giving this a number like five or four or something, and I just realized like it's going to be different for everybody. And I was going to say save seed, but really saving seed isn't really what's necessary. Like the picture I posted today, yeah, my, my garlic chives were going to seed. They cool flowers that they get on top of them. I like to eat the flowers, actually, more than I worry about the seed from them. Once you're growing something like garlic chives, that's a clump that just keeps spreading, you can literally just pull it out of the ground and break this clump into four or five clumps and then replant them, and you got more. I mean, that's a type of plant that you really can't ever run out of. One other thing that I grow is sweet potato. And sweet potato is something that gives me a leaf crop and a tuber crop. But all I have to do is save one or two tubers every year to start new slips, which are the little vines that come off them. And then once I start planting those, each place I plant them and they start growing really fast and really long, I can cut tips off and make more to where I have a whole system of how I, I, I replicate, plant, grow, and cultivate just sweet potato. And I'm always improving that system. We'll save that for later with a different skill set. It's more of how to think than, than what to do. But that, So both of those are ways that aren't really saving seed. On the other hand, when I plant something like um, my Trombuccino zucchini, the seed for that is pretty expensive. But what I finally found is a plant that not only makes me a good summer squash and a good winter squash from one plant, but it has a survival rate high enough despite all the vine borer and squash bug activity here. It's worth planting a crap load of them in the spring And by this time of year, they're kind of done, and that's okay. They've done what they need to do. Well, by making sure that I manually pollinate a few of those every year, I have an unlimited supply of seed, and it's a plant where seed is limited in availability, and it's pretty expensive. So that would be another one. And, and I think that everybody should come up with a handful of things that you really can rely on, that you really use, that you can become self-sufficient with. If you look at growing your own lettuces and things like that, well, you know, if you let one black-seeded sensin lettuce plant go to seed, you got enough seed for years. 
It doesn't have to be something where you're saving the seed or the propagation capability of everything that you produce. Just a few things so that you have some level of complete innate resiliency to that. You'll always be able to do that. With my aquaculture, I've gotten it now where I have enough separate ponds that in one pond I'm producing enough minnows and goldfish and shrimp that if I ever have to feed my fish long term without being able to provide them you know, fish pellets, I can do it. I may not want to run that system right now that way, but I've developed the ability to do so. So that would be another way to self-replicate your food. The next one, we go to three. It still has to do with food because th these businesses could be food producers. But I think you really need to develop a relationship with local businesses. And that does not just have to do with people that grow food locally. Some of you may have a hard time finding local businesses that produce food. But you'll find local businesses. And I think whenever possible, instead of doing business with Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, do, do business with John's Hardware. And get to know the people that work at and own these businesses. Really try to develop your network that way so that you know them. And the smaller the business, the closer you can be to the owner of the business. And the best relationship is with that business owner. And if that means maybe getting involved with Chamber of Commerce or something like that, then do it. But, but start developing those relationships with local business and local sources. And even when you're doing business with like a chain or something like that, see the management and the key employees in those businesses as local business people, because they are. So before he left, for instance, and before the local tractor supply location near me went to shit, there was a manager there that was amazing. And it was night and day when you walked in a store. When he was on duty, it was like a military operation. And when he wasn't there, it didn't look very good. But I had a relationship with him to where I knew his shift and whatever. If I needed something, I'd go there when he was there. If I needed something they didn't have, I knew he would take care of it for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to develop that location with, with other suppliers like that because that guy's left and what's left at the remnant that's there, I don't expect that store to be in business soon. I've taken my business now to a regional provider named Russell Feeds for a lot of things I used to use for tractor supply. And I've tried to get to know the people who kind of run the location. There's two locations very close to me, about the same distance. You know, when somebody does something for us, they're like, we have delivery or something, we always tip them. We always try to develop and cultivate that relationship. And what that means is when, like, this COVID thing popped up, and I called and said, hey, you know, we need, like, 20 more bags of duck food to make sure that we can get through this and I didn't want to go buy it that second it wasn't a problem it never ended up being a problem but it wasn't a problem it was like oh okay yeah you guys no problem why we weren't somebody that all of a sudden freaked out and called them we were somebody that always bought 20 bags we were just buying our 20 bags early that relationship was invaluable and so many other relationships like that have been invaluable with COVID more things that will disrupt supply chains are coming in the next 10 years like you wouldn't believe Develop those local relationships. Number four, get started in cryptocurrency and start doing business in it. This is one a lot of you are still holding out on, and I really wish you wouldn't. So I, I think what screws people up with Bitcoin is that people got so in on the idea of making a lot of money with it, and it was a good thing to get involved in back when I started telling you to get involved with it. It's, it's been very good to me to both accept Bitcoin and to invest in some Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But don't worry about whether or not it's going to go to the moon or whether it's going to crash and burn. You don't worry about your money that way. 
You're not like, oh, well, I'm holding a couple hundred bucks in my checking account. My God, what happens if the dollar value goes up or down? You buy stuff with dollars. I'm suggesting that you, you learn how to use a crypto, cryptocurrency wallet. I recommend Jax. I think it's a great wallet. It's not the only one out there. There's millions of Every time I mention that, I, go, I prefer this. I, go, go use it. That's fine. But if you're, if you're not sure where to start, Jax is going to work for you. Get a Jax wallet. You can even buy cryptocurrency inside the Jax wallet through a basic exchange. You'd have to do KYC, which is know your customer, and you have to give ID and all that crap to do that. And anytime you're going to buy it for cash, you're going to have to do that. Or you can get Jax, not do that, and just receive money into it and do whatever you want. Right? Um, I really recommend that you set up an account with Coinbase, fund it with at least 100 bucks in Bitcoin, and then move it to a wallet like Jax just to learn from that and then you know spend it. If you decide you want to hold some because it might go up in value, then keep buying a little bit here and there or, or start doing something in return for it. But just reach out. People are like, well, no, most businesses don't take Bitcoin. Did you ask? Because it's surprising what happens when you ask. But, you know, you're dealing with some $7 an hour clerk. Well, of course they don't know. Didn't I also say to start relationships with local businesses? And you might find a lot of local businesses and, and, and other people you talk to, you know, I'd, I'd like to, but I don't know how. Well, let me show you how. That strengthens the relationship. And all you have to do is say, look, go on the App Store Search for J-A-X-X. Install that app. Okay, so you're, you're charging me $150 for this. Will you take all Bitcoin, or do you want half Bitcoin and half cash? How do you want to do this? I want to do all Bitcoin. Okay, so hold up your phone. I'm going to $100. Beep. Okay, and not long after this, you'll have your $100 of Bitcoin or $150 of Bitcoin. Now you have Bitcoin. Now you took Bitcoin. Now do, me, do my thing for me or give me my product. It's that easy. I did a video on this and how you know just getting a wallet and starting to use it is the easiest way to get started. Instead of worrying about merchant accounts and stuff like that, just start exchanging information and teach people how to do it and learn how to do it yourself. You know, but definitely if you do something that you sell, especially if you sell a service where you don't have a hard cost in it and you want to start taking crypto, just go get the Jack's wallet and just tell your customers you'll take crypto. And don't be afraid to take an extra step. To accept crypto. When I explain this on Unloose the Goose, Curtis Stone is just getting started out with these goes, That's too much work. What? Talking to your customer? Getting that a chance to have a personal contact with your customer? For the few customers that are going to say they want to do it? To form that really, that's too much work? I don't think you get it then. Right? So no matter what it is you do, if you do anything as a service or a product development, especially like a homemade product or something, I always say even if you, you sell on a platform that doesn't let you take crypto, say in your description, I take crypto, contact me for details. And then it's as simple as here's an address, send me money. Here's your thing. And then that way there's no cash involved. There's no identification involved. You have an app that receives crypto and they have an app that sends crypto. That is all the end. Get, get started on this because it is going to be one of the few alternatives that enables you to have any semblance of privacy in a new world because we are going to see the death of cash within 10 to 20 years at the absolute limit, maybe far quicker than you think. Um, next, if you use social media, I'm not going to go on this one long because I did that whole show on it yesterday, but if you use social media, get on at least one alternative platform. Learn it and develop relationships there because we've already seen how quickly what you've built can be taken away from you. They didn't take it away from me. I walked away before they could so that I could get out ahead of the curve. I'm telling you right now,
If I just had continued with Facebook the way that I was doing, it was only a matter of time before my account was shut down and certainly my, my TSP group was shut down. And the TSP group will probably eventually get shut down by Facebook. Because even though I'm not involved anymore, people are going to post things. And sooner or later, one of the Facebook Nazis is going to say, we don't like this thing, so we warned you we're going to take this away. If you value social media, then you should have at least one platform that you have connections to people on that can help you, that can give you information, that can exchange ideas with you, that is not subject to that type of technological tyranny. And if it's, you know, I'm on Parler, I'm on MeWe, I'm on Gab. Those are the three that I'm running with. I'm putting almost every piece of content on all three equally for at least the next two months. And we're going to see what happens. That doesn't mean everything will go on all three, but most things will. Some things will be specific to one or the other, right? I may even do some things where we're doing some direct communications uh, on different days. I'm using Telegram, etc. Get on something that is independent of the tech tyrants. I'll no more than that because of today. Next, get your kids out of government school if you have kids. I, I, I can't tell you what it was like this morning to watch my grandson go through that progression. To come out and, you know, my wife's already left and there he is. He's on his iPad. He's listening to his teacher. He's do, working through his assignments. To watch him make a decision for himself. I'm, I'm tired. I finished this assignment. I got another one to do yet before I'm done for the day. I feel like taking a nap. There's a dog. There's a pad. But we'll lay down and take a nap. Don't they make kids take naps at school? Takes a nap. A little power nap. Five, ten minutes. Jumps on the next assignment. Knocks that out. Pshh, gee, I'm done for the day. Got the house to myself. Old man's in there doing his crazy podcast stuff. Grandma's off. It's really hot outside. I don't feel. I'm gonna. He's basically doing an art class, teaching himself how to draw. And I think of my friends that were bored to death in school that were really talented artists sitting in the back diddling and getting yelled at for it, and my grandson getting every bit the education and more that they got and not being yelled at for doing what he really wants to do, and still being highly educated. And doing great, you know, maintaining a 4.0 grade point average. It's amazing. Well, government schools didn't do that. His realization that we were giving him the opportunity to take control of his own life did. In the words of Malcolm X, only a fool would let his enemy educate his children. The government is not your friend. The government does not have your best interest at heart. Your government absolutely does not have the best interest at heart for your children, and I don't give a shit if you're best friends and butt buddies with somebody on the school board. It doesn't change what the government school system is. It's a system of programming and control that has dumbed down our society to the point where we have willingly let the government destroy the economy of our nation to be for, for fear of a virus that is a bad cold. And if you're triggered when I said that, you're in denial of facts and reality. It doesn't mean it doesn't kill anybody. It doesn't mean it's not a problem. It doesn't mean it's not dangerous for some people. It's still what it is. It's still what it is. It's something that if you're under 55 years old, if you get it, you have like a 99.98% chance that you ain't going to kill you. And you got like a 99.0 chance it's not even going to be a serious issue for you. And yet we run around and cower in fear. While people run around and the number one cause of death in this country is kind of a toss-up between heart disease that's mostly caused by abuse of our own bodies, errors by physicians and doctors in medical establishment, and being too fat. 
And we run and cower from something like this to the point where we're, you know what? And here's the thing. We were going to have that anyway. We're going to have a pandemic anyway. Flatten the curve does not mean what they've twisted it to make you think it means. It doesn't mean any less people get it or don't get it. And it doesn't mean anybody less people die. It just means less people have it at any given time. And the only reason you do that, the only reason you do that is so we don't overwhelm the medical establishment. If the medical establishment can handle it, we go on with life with sensible precautions. That's completely logical. And if any part of your brain is resisting it, you can blame the programming you receive from government, school, and media. Get your children out so they do not suffer the same fate. There is no way you look at this situation as a critical thinker and come to any other conclusion. And the vast majority of people in this country, even those that are you know, in the opposition, so to say, are not really in the opposition. They're cowering in fear of something, and they've done it so easily, and they've given up their freedom so easily. And your government did that on purpose. We have programmed compliance and obedience above thinking and education. You do not want school for your children. You want an education for your children. In the same way you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. There are so many options. I beat this up a lot lately, so I'll go short on it, but get your kids out of the government school if you have kids. I also think, like, on your own education, it's really a great idea to start learning basic herbal medicines. Learn how to make a salve. Learn how to make a compress. Learn how to make a tincture. Learn how to make an infusion. Right? Learn how to make a decoction. None of this is hard. I have a great book I'll put in the show notes for you today, The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. It's one book, and you use it, and it's like a course on herbology. And that doesn't mean you'll be some kind of master herbalist or something, but you'll be able to go out in your own backyard, and when I say backyard, I mean you kind of own area, and find four or five useful herbs and make four or five different medicines out of them and combinations of them each which gives you like a whole medicine chest just by developing a few things of knowledge. And it'll change the way you think about nutrition and health. You know, I'd say if you get that book and then you go back to the series I did years ago on herbal action, I did four different podcasts on 10 herbal actions each. So you learn 40 herbal actions, what those words are, what those words mean, and examples of herbs that fit in those herbal actions. You'll know more than most people who have taken very expensive courses in herbology. And you'll be, the way that, that those two will come together is not so much that you'll memorize these things that you can do. It will be, you'll expand your reasoning and your thought process to the point where you can always figure out, well, here's what I have available. Here's the type of methodology that can be used to make an herb usable. And here's the thing that I'm trying to address. And then you'll be able to formulate what you need from what you have. That's way more valuable than knowing, oh, just that comfrey goes on, on cuts and sores. Because what if it's not a cut and sore? What if it's a deep cut where you can't use comfrey because it's not a good idea? What if it's a fungal issue or a bacterial issue? What herbs do you use and how do you use them? Like Once you know that, you basically have a, a medicine chest whenever you walk through the woods. And that's incredibly valuable. And it won't just change how you take care of yourself. It'll change how you think. It will re reduce your anxiety because you'll realize how much control you really have over your life. And you'll realize how many things that we use that we think of as safe medications are not very safe. You'll realize that a lot of our answers are in nature. Not all, 
There's some things that modern medicine is great for, and I will never turn it down when it's the right choice. But I always turn to herbs first, if it makes sense, because it usually does. On that, I also want you to take one of your skills or mindsets or whatever you want to call it and learn about supplements as both disease prevention and therapy. And you want to take this and you kind of want to break it down and, and pick something to learn about. Like right now, I'm still in my process of learning huge amounts about vitamin D. And because of vitamin D, I've learned a lot about things like vitamin K2. I've learned about the difference between D2 and D3. I've learned about the role magnesium plays in all this. I've learned a lot about... Uh, the endocrine system. I've learned like so much from just researching this one herb, and I'm working my way through the third book. And I have three books that I'm reading. I recommend them all. They're the Optimal Dose is the first one, and uh, the second one I can't even remember exactly what it's called now, but I'm going to put links to all three of them. And it's by like kind of an independent researcher guy. It's kind of a maniac. But I learned a lot from it. I would just use some caution in it because the guy's not a doctor. He's not a scientist. Um, and he's done some pretty crazy things in, in learning, but he's learned a lot. And I picked up a lot of things that kind of go back to the first book. Because in the Optimal Dose, there's nothing in there about K2. And I don't think that when that book was written, the role that K played that goes along with vitamin D was even understood yet. And the third one is called basically How Not to Die When Doing High, uh, Extremely High Dose Vitamin D Therapy. And that third book is not really written for someone like me, per se. It's written for somebody dealing with an autoimmune condition that's going to you know, put them in a wheelchair eventually, like multiple sclerosis. It doesn't think there's anything that can be done to find out about therapies being used by doctors in, in places like Portugal and Brazil that's actually reversing MS. But it doesn't come without risk, and it's really designed for a patient to read in depth and understand and then take this information to a doctor and find a doctor that will work with them to do the testing and monitoring necessary to get where they want to be to see if this will work for them. Why am I reading it? Because it's backfeeding into the other knowledge that I've gained from the first two books. And what will I do once I complete that? I'll probably pick another supplement to learn more about or another condition to learn more about how to supplement for it. And I won't always be doing this, but for the rest of my life, at different times, I'll be doing this. And this is why, when COVID started up, before Eastern Virginia Medical School or even the doctor that brought us the, the HCQ therapy, Zelenko, or any of these places now that are all publishing these protocols for prophylaxis and for treatment of COVID, if you notice this, they all are giving at their core. Some are adding some things or what have you. But they're all at the core giving you what I gave you in like the end of March, beginning of April. Quercetin, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C. Now, unlike a lot of people, I didn't like just come out, oh, all you need is uh, elderberry and vitamin C or whatever. Like, I was able to give you like, look, yeah, you know what? Elderberry kind of helps in the prevention of flu and flu-like illnesses because, well, among other things, it's high in quercetin. But it's not that high in quercetin, and if you want a therapeutic level that actually pushes zinc into your cells, you really can't get enough from elderberry because you'll give yourself a diabetic coma with all the sugar in the syrup, right? Like, elderberry syrup does what it does, and it's not a bad thing, and a lot of times it's actually a really useful substance, but here's why you biochemically want to use this. Now, why did I come at it from that viewpoint? Because I've done enough research into supplementation to understand what supplements can and can't do. And so when 
this the way this all came together for me is I wanted to know everything that every researcher was saying might be useful against COVID. And I found one obscure article by one researcher in Montreal, Canada, who had done work on the SARS-1 virus and had done work on Ebola and said, Quisertin is helpful. And the way he came at it, I was like, he's not selling it. He's putting out his research, and it worked. And it worked better in some places than others. And at the same time, I was looking at the research coming from Dr. Zelenko that was saying, yes, hydroxychloroquine works, but you've got to give it early, and you've got to give it with zinc. In addition to the Z-Pak antibiotic, you've got it, but you've got to give zinc with it. And that led me to, well, why? That led me to the guy on MedCram who was explaining why hydroxychloroquine worked if we added zinc. Another doctor that no one wants to, li- to be you know, heard. And he explained that it got the zinc into the cell. It was an ionophore. Now I had a word. If I took that word and put it with quercetin, ionophore, quercetin, holy shit, there's you know, PubMed data demonstrating that quercetin is a zinc ionophore. Hence... These things go together. Then I looked at the data on vitamin D and the correlation between low vitamin D levels and severe cases. Okay, vitamin D probably works. Now, how much vitamin D can we actually take? Let's do that research. And all of a sudden, we come together with this full protocol. And some bitch, if two months later, you don't have medical colleges coming out with groups of doctors all working together to come out with a very similar protocol to what a redneck hippie duck farmer gave you two months earlier. Well, wouldn't it have been great if you could have done that for yourself even faster than I did it for you? Or maybe that wasn't what I was working on that day. Because what if you were the one dealing with the exposure in that 60-day window? Wasn't it great that I was able to tell you that before everybody else started talking about it and all of a sudden it started disappearing from the shelves? So you could go get it before it disappeared. It was all about coming at it as a systems thinker and a background in supplementation. Not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. But this stuff isn't that hard. All you have to do is figure out what the active components are, what they do, what you're trying to deal with, and what any risks are so that you mitigate or avoid them. And know when to say, I'm not sure, so I need to talk to a doctor about this. And then know how to be informed enough to not just accept the answer that a doctor gives when they really don't know shit about what they're talking about. Because I've learned doctors don't know much about supplementation. Unless they've decided to know a lot about supplementation, they don't know anything about it. Yeah, multivitamin might not hurt, but it probably doesn't do any good either. You're buying expensive urine. That's the average doctor's opinion of supplementation. Then you say, well, can you overdose on a supplement? Well, yeah. Okay, so which is it? Which is it? Do supplements have an effect that can be positive? Or do they have no effect? Because if they have no effect, you shouldn't be able to easily overdose on some of them, which you can. So clearly your body does something with them. And it's not their fault. I'm not coming down on doctors. I'm just saying if you want to be able to take control of your life from an herbal and supplement standpoint, you have to, you have to, I don't care that the media is now telling you you must not do your own research. That's, that's the latest message. You must not do your own research when it comes to science and medicine. You know what? Screw that shit. You better. So work on those two. And then, Along with that, and across all the rest of these, you need to develop both systems thinking and critical thinking. I'm putting them in the one, but they're not the same. 
Systems thinking is when we break down something end to end and we figure about all the pieces that work within it and how to improve that process or how to integrate that process with something else. Critical thinking really comes kind of, you know, Descartes, doubt everything. I think, therefore I am. But, but the reason we got to I think, therefore I am was I know that I doubt that I am doubting. There's a whole way that that went through, right? But I doubt this and I doubt that. And am I really here and am I really not? And if I don't know anything else, I know that I doubt that I am doubting. I think, therefore I am. If, if nothing else, I doubt that I'm doubting. And, and, and critical thinking means that whenever anything is brought to you, you immediately doubt it. And then you attempt to prove or disprove it from an evidential standpoint based on what you know and what you can learn about it at any given time. And if we, if we did that with all these things that they're calling dangerous misinformation about COVID, you'd realize where the real dangerous misinformation is coming from. It's coming from the media and it's coming from the government. Using a 70-year-old medication that's been used safely on an outpatient basis forever, you know, and, and for as long as most people have been alive or longer, and, and, and then claiming it's dangerous and only should be used in a hospital, that's dangerous misinformation. And the only way you get to a point where people will accept it is fact. And I don't care how political they've made it, right? Even if you're making it political, and I hate the orange man or whatever, and he said it so I don't like it, to believe something is dangerous when there is mountains of evidence that it is not requires a lack of critical thinking. When you take critical thinking and systems thinking and put them together, you can accomplish anything you really want to in your life. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, and it doesn't mean you'll do the best job that anybody ever did at it. It just means if you really want something, you'll be able to have it. And it's so valuable. And then systems thinking will tie back into all the rest of it. I, I talked about sweet potato, and I was thinking about, when I was thinking about all this today, I was out in the garden, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm kind of thinking through all this without even thinking about what I'm doing, is I'm watering my garden with my dribbler thing, and I'm just kind of moving it from one spot to the other, making sure all the plants get watered. I'm just cutting tips off my sweet potatoes. And then I'm taking my, you know, my Patrick Rorman made MT knife and I'm cutting the leaves off the vines. And I'm making like eight new slips and I'm popping them into the, uh, the stand-up pipes for my air stacks in my ponds. They'll, and in a week they'll be rooted and I'll plant them in other beds and other places. And I realized like, I've been growing sweet potato for years and a lot, what I'm doing right now without even thinking about it, almost mindlessly, is something I developed in the last Part of it I developed in the last two weeks, and part of it I developed over the last four years. And I'm continuing to improve, and everything I do will either make it better or not hurt what I already have. Because I'm not doing it in the, as a replacement. Like, okay, I'll start doing this. I'll add this to what I'm already doing. I'll see how that works. And if it's worth doing, maybe I'll switch some things over to it. But what I already have as a baseline that's working, we'll leave that alone until we prove out this new methodology works better. And I'm doing it without even thinking about it. I'm not like, you know, I'm going to go out and develop a new way to grow sweet potatoes today. It's like, hey, this probably works. Let's stick that in there and see what how Shit, that works. Let's start doing this. And then you go out and you're not even thinking, oh, today I'm going to propagate sweet potatoes. You're watering a garden and it takes a certain amount of time and it doesn't really require your full attention. Oh, look at that. Snap, boom, bam. It's the same thing that happens when you go out and you look and you go, oh, look at the, look at the big dried out seed head on that basil plant. And you just strip it off and throw it in a bed. 
And you know some of that's going to come back as new plants next year. You're not going to have to do anything. And it's going to be selected for resiliency and strength and quality, and it's all going to take care of itself. That's systems thinking. The way I built the garden around the pond, systems thinking. The way I'm building my new version of the old aquaponics farm or hydroponics farm, indoor farm, systems thinking. The way Insidious and I are going back and forth with different ideas on the blog about it. It's two systems thinkers arguing with each other, and both of them are probably right in their own way. You take systems thinking and you add critical thinking to it, and you've got power over everything. Because now you're controlling your own mind. And the war in this world is for the control of your mind, your thought, and your attention. And either you control your mind, your thoughts, and where your attention goes, or somebody else does. And if somebody else does, they control you and you are their slave. So I suggest that you don't let that happen. And the only way to do that is to take control yourself. Next, teach every member of your family firearms use and safety. Age appropriate, of course. It does you no good to have 20 guns in your house and think if a mob comes to my house, we'll defend our house, and you're the only one that knows how to use them because you're only using one, maybe two at the most at the same time. Every member of your, and if, what if you're not there? You should train your wife, you should train your kids to whatever level they are at emotionally, spiritually, age-wise to be acceptable for. Every member of your household should be trained in the use of firearm safety and proper use and up to and including self-defense and lethal defense. Because if somebody's trying to kill you, you know, if you want to be a pacifist, fine. My view is if you try to kill me, I'm going to kill you back. I'm going to kill you better, faster, and harder than you're trying to kill me. I'm not letting you take my life. I had somebody one time when I said that, SJW type, at a, at a place where I was giving a talk, say, well, so what you think is your life is worth more than somebody else's. And my answer was, you know my answer is a systems thinker and a critical thinker. It depends. At any point that you've chosen to be the aggressor and violate the non-aggression principle, I think your life is worth less than the person you're being aggressive toward. If that happens to be me, so be it. If it happens to be somebody else, so be it. If you're threatening the life and safety of someone else, your life is worth less than their life because you've chosen to be the aggressor. That person was peaceful up until you chose to become aggressive. So yes, I absolutely feel if you try to break in my house, steal my things, hurt my family, hurt my animals, take something from me that's not yours, yes, your life just immediately, this second, absolutely to the infinity, has become worth less than mine. And you chose to make it that way. And I'm sorry. And the more of us to think that, less, that way, the less of this shit, these riots and crap we're going to have going on. Next, Get out in in the woods, I put in quotes, at least once a month on some level and do something. Go fishing, go hiking, take a walk, sit under a tree, contemplate your navel, get into nature. And I put the woods in quotes because what if you live where it's desert? Then go out into the desert. You know, is it the woods? Is it a lake that you take a ride in a boat on? What I'm saying really when I say get into the woods is get into nature. We are not city Things. We are not an animal that's designed to live biologically in an apartment building. We are not biologically suited to sit in cars and drive down roads. The only reason we can even do it on any level is we designed the car to fit us. Cars are not a natural part of the ecosystem. 
No matter how eco-friendly you make a car, it's not a natural part of an environment. We were not born into a world that had things that looked like houses in them. We lived in caves and improvised shelters, and in, mostly in the forest. We lived in forest. If you've ever been, if you go into the right part of a forest, there are parts of a forest that the trees are so thick that even when it rains, you don't really get very wet. When I was a kid and we would hunt in the late season, we did a lot of hunting in the pines in the winter, like in the late season when it was really cold out. We did that because we were more comfortable in the pines than out in the open timber with the wind howling through at you and the, the wet spitting snow landing on your face and freezing to your little fuzzy peach hairs because I was a teenager back then and just starting to grow that little teenager mustache. And I also knew this. If I was more comfortable in those pines, so was the deer. That's what was a good place to be. It was quiet and sheltered in there. And I learned a lot sitting in those pines even when I didn't see any deer and even when I didn't bring anything home. I learned a lot as a kid, you know, realizing this ram's head mushroom, if I went to the store to buy this, this one big mushroom, it's like $300 in value. And all I have to do is know where it is and take care of the environment and come there once a year with a knife and harvest some of these mushrooms. And I can have all this nourishment, all the medicinal value, all of the food value, all of the, 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 the culinary value, just by understanding the system and being part of it. This is what we are. And when people try to say that that's not true, when you, you know, like you're being a primitivist or whatever, for the majority of human history, we didn't even have shoes. We didn't have shoes. Once you accept that, this idea that we're supposed to live in a world of concrete and steel 24-7 just evaporates and goes away. This is not what we are. And it's okay. And I don't want to go back to being a primitive. So I live in a house. I have a beautiful outdoor kitchen. You know? If you guys follow me and see things beyond what I do with the show, you see that we've done a lot to make this house really nice. We've changed it. We've upgraded. We've spent money and time and effort. I'm not putting down this, but I'm also saying that it's not the way we should always live, and we need those breaks so that we can think clearly by being what we really are, which is we are a native species to planet Earth. We are part of nature. We are part of the wilderness. That is what we are. And we need to reboot like a battery being recharged once in a while. We also, you've you got to develop a secondary source of income. A side hustle. I don't care what. You cannot rely. You just can't continue to rely on the fact that a job's going to be there, employment's going to be there. It may be, but you need to have, just like we store food, you need to have kind of a reserve income source, not just reserve income. You know, I, I think back to when I used to listen to Dave Ramsey in, in my car when I would be driving to different places, and he would talk about how, you know, if you if you need more income, go deliver pizzas. 
And I was like, you know, that's that's valid. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's valid because you can actually make a decent amount of extra money delivering pizzas. You can work off hours. Most people don't order pizza at 9 o'clock in the morning. They order it kind of after after work time. So a person that's just trying to figure out, like, until I figure out what I'm doing, I just want more money? Okay. But it was also like, okay, you have to go get a job, right? And then if you decide you don't want to do it next week and they have you on a shift, you it And now you have like Uber Eats and all of the different ways you can deliver food where you take the ones you want when you want to take them. And look, I'm not doing that, right? I'm not, and what I mean by I'm not doing it isn't that I won't do that as beneath me. I mean, I mean, I'm physically, I'm not doing that. You know what? I don't need to. I have multiple streams of income. I've built those for myself over the years. But let me tell you something. When I was in my early mid-20s, and I was basically working as a project manager but being paid like a tech because I'd just come into the field that I was in before I kind of made it, I tried everything I could to find decent-paying part-time jobs. And eventually what I came up with was part-time contracting in the same field I was working in. So I would work for cash money and things like that um, for someone I actually eventually ended up going to work for and running crews for And it, I never lose skill, skill sets and everything from it. But had I had the ability to do Uber or Lyft or Uber Eats or Amazon deliveries or anything like that when I was in my 20s, I would have been all over it. I would have taken every minute of my time that wasn't being spent in recreation or sleep. And I would have dedicated it to that and made as much money as I could and stocked it away until I figured out. And I would, then I would have probably done the same thing in my life that I did anyway. But I just would have had more money and made more productive use of my time while I was figuring it out. So if that's where you start, that's where you start, right? I mean, there, do you know there's a site called Rover? Rover, and you can do pet sitting. And, and that could be actual pet sitting, but most of the time what it is is somebody that needs someone for a week while they're gone to go let their dog out twice a day. I mean, how much easier can they make it for you to side hustle before you'll side hustle? So whether it's developing your own product, developing your own series of books, developing your whatever, like or doing something that kind of mundane but productive and with some guaranteed return, do something because, you again, you cannot rely on just employment being the way that people make money from here on out. The next one is, and everybody should be doing this already that's part of this community, but I know you're not, not all of you, because uh, I've seen what happens when we have disasters pop up and then people are like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. You need a food storage solution for your home. This includes methods, techniques, and inventory management. Um, I have an article on holistic food storage that I will link to in today's show notes. I wrote it years ago. Almost nothing's changed about it. It talks about all the different ways that we can store food, from the most mundane copy canning stuff to growing our own food to producing our own storables to sourcing food, and you need that. But you need a, a, a total holistic solution. You need to get serious about this. And I'm not saying you need a year of food or you need a bunker stocked with MREs or something like that. That's kind of the anti version of what I have taught for 12 years now. What I'm saying is you need a system that's so integrated into your life that it just happens. That you know, There's certain things that you use out of your pantry that are storable, and when you go to the store, you buy two instead of one until you have all that you can fit in that pantry in the space allocated for that thing. And then you start treating it like a grocery store. When you go into your pantry and you take a can of that stuff out, you pull all the cans forward, and it makes a space in the back, and it goes on the list. 
And then next week when you go to the store, you buy a new one of those or buy two, however many you use that week, and you stick them in the back there, and it's all full up again. Same way we do it in a grocery store. We call it fronting merchandise in the grocery business. I did that as a kid. right? I was a grocery stalker, and they called it fronting merchandise. Basically, you front your own merchandise, and you put the new stuff in the back. You, you want to do that to the point where you can't run out once you've reached kind of the peak that you're going to store in that pantry. And a pantry could be a pantry. It could be any way in which you store your food for regular use. That it's like it's impossible to run out. And then if there's a supply chain disruption, you know you have four weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks worth of that food. You need a deep freezer. Please get a deep freezer. I know it's hard to right now, but everybody in this audience should own a deep freezer. I know you think, what well, if the power goes out, we're getting there. That's the next one, right? And and you know. Store food and then learn to store food. Like we've really fallen in love with cauliflower rice. Um, we use it a lot. Well, I got to tell you, it's it's a little bit of a difficult thing to store large amounts of because it's bulky. Uh, I've heard it de dehydrates. So the next time I do a Costco run and buy a bunch of cauliflower rice, I'm going to bring some of it home. I'm going to dehydrate it. I'm going to see what it takes to rehydrate it. I'm going to see how it cooks. I'm going to see if it works. No more cauliflower in the freezer. If I can't tell the difference when I cook it. No more cauliflower in the freezer. It will come home and go directly into the Excalibur. Why? Because it's just a better way to do things. And it will become an integrated part of our food storage plan. There'll be a new place on the shelf for jars of dehydrated cauliflower to go. There'll be a jar of dehydrated cauliflower in my main cabinets over the stove where I cook. I'll have a measurement and know, you know, half a cup equals when rehydrated. There'll be a little... Thing of cup thingies up there, like I ha that's what I have. It's like a cup, a half cup, a quarter cup, little scoopers, right? And they just sit up there. Actually, I've gone to more of a like the kind you pour into, the little dipper one. It's a two cup one of those made out of Pyrex, because that way when I drop it, because I will, it won't break. And you just, I'll just dump it in there and go, okay, I need a half cup of that, boom, and throw the chicken stock in or whatever it is. Whatever I come up with, it will become just a thing. And then there'll be a certain number of jars, and oh, we're out of jar. We need one bag to fill two jars. Let's get that next time. And as soon as you come home, you see what I mean? It needs to be systematized that way. Now, anybody who's been to my shops and all those, there's a lot of places where I don't look very organized, <laughs> and I'm not in some ways. But when it comes to my food, it's we just you use it every day, and I find that things that you use every day are the easiest things to organize. Because as you, you take, you, you, you put back. And, and however you do it, you need a food storage holistic solution for your home. We are going to have supply chain disruptions over the next decade. You might have them this fall. You might have them this spring. I don't know when, but I know that you will. So please do that for me and for your family. Next, get a generator or two and store fuel for it and therefore by proxy your car. I think if everything you own is diesel, you probably should invest in diesel generators. They're much more expensive. They're also better. But that way you store one fuel. The easy thing for most people is to go with a gas generator. I know try fuel and all that, fine if you want to, right? But don't have a propane-only generator when you have two vehicles that use gasoline sitting in your driveway. You, you see the flaw in that thinking. If it uses both, like I said, try fuel, okay, fine. You want to do a kit, turn first kit or whatever, fine. If that makes you feel good, do it. But it's amazing... What 60 gallons of gas and a big generator and a backup smaller generator will do for your peace of mind and your life. 
And where do I come up with 60 gallons of gas? A five-gallon can, one for each month. Month one, month two, month three, month four, month five, month six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Right? So one is January. All you do is get a big gas can, write a giant number one on it with a Sharpie. That's number one. In January, you fill that up, you close it up, you put it on the shelf. And you keep doing that. And you get to 12 as fast as you can. You don't necessarily wait till next month to buy another gas. You have your own budget, your own time, your own limitations, whatever. You know, maybe you go six gallons really fast, right? And then you go seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve a little bit slower as you come through. Use a little bit of stable in each can to make sure that it's nice and storable, but you're not going to have any problems with a one-year storage to one-and-a-half-year storage, depending on how fast you get there. And then we come around, it's January. What are we going to do in January? Oh, we've got to go to the gas station. Take the can with the number one on it, put your, 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 your nozzle you've built for yourself on there. You want to modernize your gas cans. You can look on the side on how to do that. So you're not using those stupid ones that spill half the gas. Or make yourself a little bell siphon with uh, the tubing. Here's a real quick easy hack. Get some of the tubing that they use for fuel lines for boats and get a priming bulb for a boat. Put some tube on one side, tube on the other side. Stick that in your gas can. Stick the other tube in your gas tank. Pump, 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 start to siphon. Set the gas can up on the, on the hood of the car or on the roof of the car or whatever. And it'll siphon all the gas pretty much out of the car. And you'll have to dump the last little bit in. But one way or another, take the five-gallon can of gas in January that has a number one on it and dump it in your car when it's time to go get gas. Take the empty can with you to the gas station, fill it up, bring it home, and put it back on the shelf. Guess what you do first, second week of February? Number two can, March, number three can, April, number four can. I think you can figure out the rest. Now you have a constantly rotated storage of 60 gallons of gas that's all in five-gallon cans that can easily be picked up and moved. And if all of a sudden you need an extra five gallons of gas, the, the lawnmower needs it, whatever, you just use the next can in rotation and fill it back up. That's all you got to do. Really, really simple. And then there's always somewhere between 50 and 60 gallons of gas, which will run a good inverter generator or even like a big regular generator like my Troy built 7500 for a long time. And we don't need to run our generators 24-7, 365 during an outage. We can run them when we need them and shut them off. And we can run our deep freezer just for a couple hours a day and, then, and throw moving blankets on it. And that'll get us through that. Get a generator. Of all the preps I have, the one that's paid off the most times for me is a generator. It is the best money we've ever spent on preps ever infinity. We've used it a lot here. But, buddy, let me tell you, when we lived in Arkansas, we used it a shitload. Because we were at the end of a road. There was only 13 people from the, from the paved part of the road up the dirt. There were only 13 people back there. 13 houses. More than 13 people. And so if the power was out, and it was out in town, and town had 12,000 people without power, and we had 13, we came last. Can't blame the power company for that. And with the storms we had in the area and all, we were out without power quite a few times. Since I moved here, we've probably had a, a, an outage sufficient to use the generator at least once every other year. And it saved our bacon with all the pond pumps and all that, and being able to run window air conditioners and things like It is so valuable. Get a generator, get a generator, get a generator, then get another generator. And right now, they're expensive. I was going to wreck, I, I should have ran it yesterday, but the Briggs and Stratton 
that was an 850 on sale for 850 bucks was back to 850 bucks yesterday. Oh yeah, these two hurricanes coming in, it's like 979 now. So watch for sales, pick up generators when they're on sale. Um, next, get out, get out, get out of the cities. I, I know I keep saying that, but can can we can we let Kenosha be a warning? I, a lot of you guys probably don't know what Kenosha, Wisconsin is like, but it's like a big small town. It's you know it's not Milwaukee. You know, it's it, it it's it's kind of a suburb of Chicago in some ways, honestly. It's it it's, but it's not a place where I guarantee you. Not long ago, if you had told somebody like, "Hey, you know that shit you see going on in Portland? That's going to happen here next," they would no, no, and they would have done the same. A lot of I mean, it's full of deer hunters, right? Right. I mean, this is Deer Camp City, right? Um, not that the hunters hunt there, but the hunters live there and then they go upstate to camp and what have you. And they would have all said the same thing, like, hey, you want to come try to blah, blah, we'll get our guns and we'll do it. And see, the problem is you're living in a reality where you can't do that. We have a couple that are being charged with felonies for not shooting somebody, but for standing in their own front of their own house where people were threatening to destroy their house threatening to rape the woman, and they pointed guns at the crowd and said, if you come here, this, you keep your distance, we're defending our home, and they're being charged with a felony. I think they'll, I don't think they'll be convicted, but that's where they're at. You can't just go out and start shooting people. And the, the funny thing is, they'll let everybody burn shit down, they'll let everybody destroy things, they barely arrest anybody for it. But if you shoot somebody when they're trying to burn your house down, they will probably throw you in prison. It is better to not be in a situation where it's likely to have to make that decision. Additionally, if we're going to have a flashpoint where you're going to have an all-out shooting war, you don't want to be where the front lines are. You don't want to be there. And it's going to be on the fringe. It's going to be on the edge of these big cities, these big towns. It's, it's never going to happen in the downtown metro area. As these scumbags move further and further out, there will be a point where people say, okay, if the cops are not going to defend us, we're going to defend us. It's not going to initially start with somebody just mowing down people, though that could happen, and then they'll scream, we need gun control, while they've let these people do all this shit. What's more likely to happen is some group, they'll probably call themselves patriots, will basically say, this is a, this is a hard line. And they'll go put a show of force up. And when that group of rioters runs into that show of force, at some point, sooner or later, in one of those showdowns, one of those people on the other side, or one of the people on the show, you know, the, the Patriot side, either way, one of them will crack and fire a shot. The most likely thing after any shots fired is lots of shots fired, and it will begin to go into something that looks like civil war, because it's what it is. And it doesn't matter who wins, it's now then been established, and then you're going to get the the goons will come in, the goon squad, that, was, that should have stopped it in the first place if they were going to be of any use to society, will now come in, and basically whoever kills more people will be the bad guys. If they can't stop it, and it spreads from there, it's going to be a lot easier to justify deadly force in your defense the further away from that front line you are as that problem advances. 
and the less likely it will ever actually get to you. But at least if it does, you're at a point where, okay, this is what it is, and you have time to rally your community and get ready to defend yourselves. I'm not saying that's going to happen, the second part, like the continuing in advance. I'm saying the flashpoint somewhere is going to happen, and maybe multiple somewheres, and you don't want to be there. On top of it, these cities are being destroyed. They're being destroyed with Molotov cocktails, but they're being destroyed with the management thereof of these cities, or the mismanagement thereof. We have cities where people are shitting in the street, and shooting up with dope, and passing out on the front of a business's porch. And the business owner is forbidden by law enforcement to do anything to prevent it, but there's no consequence to the dude strung out on heroin who just took a shit and laid down in it on this guy's stoop. And I know some of you are thinking, well, my city's not that bad yet. It's going to be. They're not going to change this. This is not going to stop. This will have to come to a head. That flashpoint I just talked about will have to happen in a few places. We're going to have to get to a point where enough people flee these cities that they go into complete and total decay. And then eventually, yes, they will come back. But for some of them, it could be a decade or two before they come back and restore. Some will have a peace come back here and there, and some will never come back. Look at Detroit. When's Detroit coming back? I know you watch the cool urban farming video on YouTube, and this part of Detroit is banging, and now it's got farmer's markets, and it's all cool and hip. Sure it does. Most of the city is still uh, just decay. There's parts of Chicago. <laughs> I, I, I'm talking now years ago. Years ago. I, God, way before. I was still working for Fluke Networks. We had a, 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 big, a big national convention thing in Chicago that we all went to. And I decided I would take the train to the airport from downtown Chicago just to see what things were like. The longer we went, the more I was like, damn, I'm glad I got out of my suit and have street clothes on right now and don't look so obvious because things started to look worse and worse on that train. But we went through, it seemed like, miles of complete urban wasteland. Now, let me be clear what I mean. I'm not talking about projects and people on the side of the streets, you know, looking like they're in gangs. I'm talking about... As far as you could see, to the horizon, old industrial buildings and things like that, and I didn't see any people. And that's got to be, what, 2004? This is coming to so many of these cities. Get out while you can, because the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be to extract yourself. All of these, all the media now is in denial. Right, They're in denial and anger, and some of them are even already moving to bargaining. That's three of the stages of grief. Next comes depression, and then comes acceptance. I'm seeing this move very quickly. And, and, they're, and they're, they're really starting with the denial, but as they're doing the denial, like the next day, you know, you're getting more into the, the anger stage. We've got to do something about it. Well, if, why do you have to do something about something you said isn't happening? I saw an article recently that said, why are people fleeing New York City for something that already exists here? Because it doesn't exist there, you idiot. This is, this is, this is so clear that this is coming. And I'm going to tell you what. As long as you're smart about the way you extract yourself from L.A. or Portland or Seattle or any of these big cities, Atlanta, 
and you get just far enough outside of it, as long as you're smart about how you do it, if I'm wrong, you won't resent it. Because I will not be completely wrong. I just won't be all the way right. Get out. It's the best thing you can do for yourself. Then, I think you need to be a lifelong learner. And my philosophy of learning is learn one new thing about two different things every day and rotate and replace subjects often. You can do this, like I talked about learning um, about supplements and the way I'm going through on vitamin D. If I do my reading every day, I'm going to learn way more than one new thing about vitamin D, but I still need to learn something new about something else. Right? And then eventually I'll kind of like, I'm done with vitamin D for a while. Right? So I might not be really looking into supplements at all for a little while. I might come up with something new that I want to learn about. And it won't all be preparedness or side hustle and stuff like that. I learned so much like two years ago when I got back into fish tanks. I know so much more about planted fish tanks now. And I'm not really doing anything with that other than I look at these beautiful tanks that I have in my office. And I love looking at them, and they give me a lot of pleasure. But what they've also given me, if everything in my life blows up, I know that every one of these tanks could make me a couple hundred dollars a month in plants that I can sell on eBay. I'm not going to do it because I don't need it. and I don't. I, my time is better spent building content for TSP. But if my world blows up, that's there. And I have 20 things in my life because of this process that are like that. 200 bucks here, I can make 100 bucks on this. I get, like That is the mindset that our forefathers had. When, we, when this country was founded all the way up into and past the Civil War, we were not just, a, we always say we were a nature of farmers. We were not a, nature, a, a, a nation of farmers. We were a nation of entrepreneurs whose primary entrepreneurial activity was farming. Every farmer had 20 or 30 other things that they could use to make money whenever they wanted to. And they certainly did it. Farmers are the original engineers. You, I mean, some of the best farmers I know, modern farmers that have gone into farming and are recapturing like regenerative agriculture and stuff like that, you know what they actually are? They're engineers who got tired of the corporate world and went into farming and excelled at it. You know who's an engineer? A professional engineer by trade? Mark Shepard. Of New Forest Farms. Been on the show a couple times. Good friend. One of the biggest names there is in regenerative agriculture. I got was so honored I got to write the foreword for his latest book. Amazing man. But he's actually an engineer by trade. I met another engineer in uh, northern Missouri. Doing some amazing farming with 18-foot with rows and rotating crops and doing everything on contour and growing these ancient varieties of wheat along with like these modern varieties of corn. And had improved the soil so much that when he sent the soil in for a sample, the guy from the Soil Conservation Service called him and said, Hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be plowing up native prairie. He's like, There's no native prairie here. And that farm, 10 years earlier, the soil was so bad and it was known as such a problem. When he went down to the tax office and, and did some things, some filing right after he bought the farm, the girl behind the window laughed at him and said, Oh, you're the fool that bought that old farm. It was basically known as being fallow and useless and destroyed. And he turned it into something so rich and amazing in 10 years that all of a sudden you could look at the soil and under a microscope and think you were looking at native, native prairie soils. And he was an engineer. And he was building a... I, I really need to talk to, to my buddy Nick up there and find out um, what his status is. Because he was building like a mill and like this whole thing for all the farmers in the area to be able to use as a cooperative. And he was, I think the guy was like a nuclear engineer for submarines was his background. And he started growing food because his wife got cancer and he needed better nutrition. And his wife survived because of nutrition and supplements 
and this kind of thinking. Like, that is what comes, though, when you learn one new thing about two different subjects every day over time. Because think of what that means. 365 days in a year. One new thing about two different subjects. That's 700 new pieces of knowledge a year. For 10 years, it's 7,000 pieces of knowledge that most people will never bother to learn. And remember, the power of knowledge is so amazing. Because the one new thing you learn allows you to learn 20 more things or to extrapolate 20 other things you wouldn't have been able to figure out before. Take that on and do it. Learn to estimate projects for cost and time. I come from a sales background. My sales background was largely technical. I did a lot of sales in the computer hardware world, computer testing world. But also my, my initial foray into sales, I came out of the structured cabling and underground cabling business, and I went from being able to install those jobs and manage those jobs to being able to estimate those jobs. And if you can estimate them, you can sell them. Because that business is more about estimating than it is about true sales. You find the potential customer. The key is to come in with the bid at the best price that actually does what, you, what the customer wants. And to be able to explain, there's a reason my customer's 30% cheaper. No, I'm not going to cut my price. Let's go through their bid and my bid. Let me, let me just make sure that they're getting you what you want. And at the end of it, they're like, no, they're not getting me what, what, what I want. And you're like, well, do you want to go back and see if maybe they'll do it for 20% more and be 10% less than me? Or do you want the company doing it who knew how to get you what you wanted in the first place, who knew how to listen to you and spell out in a contract where I'm now obligated to give you what you asked for? We're closing that deal. So if you develop that skill set, then you have another profession that you can, you can kind of move into. Then if you become a handyman, you're actually good at, at, at the most important part of it. Selling and getting the work for the right price, because delivering it is something you'll figure out. It also then, when you decide, hey, I want to do this thing on my property, you're not like, oh, that's going to cost me 800 bucks, and you're like, I got 800 bucks, and you get halfway in, and you're like, this is going to cost me like two thousand dollars, or this is going to take five times as long as I like. Start planning it out. Start doing all your projects with a complete learn how to use Excel, do a takeoff, and estimate man hours, and then track it. Look up Gantt chart. Learn how to do a Gantt chart, and even if it's one person doing the labor, you all the way through it, plan out the hours, and then do it. And then don't be mad at yourself when you get it wrong. Notice when I said when you get it wrong, you're going to be wrong. Oh, you're going to be so effing wrong the first time you do this. You're going to be like, good God, if I was actually doing this for a customer, I would have lost my ass. Great. You just learned something. Actually, you learned like 20 things, and it cost you nothing except a little bit of time. The next time you do it, you're going to do a better job. And within four or five of your own projects, you will literally be able to do this to at least the semi-professional getting started level, and you'll only get better at it in time. I've, um, I have, you know, some of my friends are from the construction industry, and as we've done some like the work with Jack projects and all, we, you know, they, all the materials show up and all, they're like, wow, like, you must have done a really good takeoff on this. And I'm like, yeah, well, I actually did, they call that a takeoff. I did a takeoff. Oh, you did like a full, yeah, absolutely. I think the only one I ever screwed up was last year when we did the garden beds. I didn't have enough nails, the big giant galvanized dip nails for putting the, the, uh, the timbers together. And that wasn't because I underestimated it. It's because the store only had so many and I just took all they had and hoped it would be enough. It wasn't close. We had to send people to get them. That was like the only, in all the projects we've done here, it's the only materials underestimate I've ever done. And it was a supply line chain issue, not a estimate. 
And, and you can do that. It's not magic. It's just you do it enough times, you learn how to do it. Use Excel. Develop some sort, any sort of local community. So a lot of you are getting into homeschooling now. Check this out. See if there is a good meetup group for homeschool families in your area for like activities with the kids and stuff like that. Like to go to the Arboreum or go on the, you know, have a fun day at the, whatever, right? And if there isn't one, set one up, reach out on next door, start finding people, pitch people into it, get people pitching other people into it, you run it, you management, and then you just get together and immediately you have community because what a community is built on is common ideals. And I promise you, no matter how much differently you think than somebody, if, if both of you are homeschooling your kids, you have something in common. If you're into guns, see if there's a gun club. If there isn't a gun club, see about putting one together. And it could be it could be complex where you actually have like a range you go shoot at and everything, or it could be something like, you know, the ballistic breakfast once a month. Just a bunch of guys that know guns that get together, go to Denny's and sit down and talk about reloading. Right? I mean, or ballistic breakfast, ballistic brunch, whatever. I know there might be some hiccups with that right now because of COVID, but don't wait. You're gonna have a small group in the beginning anyway. Maybe you do it in somebody's garage, somebody's backyard. The ballistic barbecue. Once a month ballistic barbecue. And every member over time that wants to takes a turn of providing the backyard for the backyard ballistic barbecue bunch. Wow, that's cool. That's some bullshit I pulled out of my ass. But it's, somebody's going to do it now, right? So why not you? You know, when I, when I grew up in Pennsylvania, we had a lot of, like, there were bars, but they were called, like, rod and gun clubs. And, and, you know, a lot of people just went there and drank, but pretty much everybody that went there, like, fished and hunted. So you had that in common. Not every community needs to be, like, a Patriot community or the Boogaloo Boys or a survivor group or a prepper group. Like, screw that shit. Like, when you know what you need for a good prepper group? People who have each other's back, that know how to do things, that are willing to help take care of each other. That's a prepper group. A whole bunch of people that want to get on Doomsday Preppers together on the cable channel is not a prepper group. Those are probably a bunch of crazy people that will end up hating each other. So when you find a common ideal, you build a very large macro community. And from it, micro communities that have affinity toward each other form, and that's how you get that together. Put some sort of local community together. Next, one of my life skills, I always talk about learn to cook. And I mean, like, really learn to cook. Like, actually, to you're good at it. To where when you cook food, but when people come to your house, like, are you cooking? Like, if you tell them you ordered takeout or something or you're going out to eat, they're a little bit disappointed, even if it's a great restaurant, because, dude, it's your, like, that. So that you can do that for yourself. I just, you know, I stopped for a little bit in the middle of my recording today, and I went and had lunch. I left over baby back ribs. Oh, what a great lunch. You know, had my commute down the hall, five and a half seconds, heated up my ribs, and those ribs were, like, just banging. You learn to do that in time. Learn to actually kind of be a little bit of a home chef and teach your kids how to do it. And you'll find that, like, it's one of the more rewarding things that you can do in life. This is, uh, this is another way of looking at being a polymath, if you think about it. Right? It's, it's fine to specialize in some things, but you don't want to be a specialist to the, to the, uh, to the exclusion of other skill sets. I think humans are best as specialist generalists. We have a few things that we're really passionate about, that we make our bread with, right? Right? That we make our money with, that we make our life with. And then we should have all these other things that we're good at that bring purpose and structure and beauty and, and, and stability and anti-fragility to our lives. 
And cooking is one of those things that's so fundamental because an army marches on its stomach. And last, I'm going to give you today, develop a diet and exercise program that works for you. Now, you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you some basic weight training and movement exercise and then whatever else you want to add to that. And a keto diet is probably the best thing for the most people. But if that's not you, if you're a vegetarian, then develop a really great vegetarian diet. Make sure you're getting enough of your proteins and supplements to go along with it. And make sure you're actually healthy. Just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're healthy. There's a lot of really sick skinny people. You know, I mean, Doc Bones and Amy have got on the keto train. And I said recently what did that wasn't us telling them about it. Because I gave them a little information about it, sent them a picture or two, whatever. When they met with us this summer on the beach... They were like, holy crap, look at the two of you. And Doc's a big skeptic, and he doesn't like to be told what to do, so he was really resistant to it and said, ah, you know, when you're my age or whatever. And then they went home, and they immediately jumped on board. And all of a sudden, Doc's A1C comes down, and he's headed toward not being a type 2 diabetic. Well, Doc's not overweight. Doc looked for his age. He looks freaking good. Like, when he told me how old he was, I'm like, no, you're not. Doc looks like he could be, like, my age, honestly. And all of a sudden, all these health issues. He's a doctor. He has his own ability to diagnose and prescribe, and he works with his doctors. He trusts doctors. He's always been a doctor. Takes his medications. All of a sudden, some of these health issues that seemed like you can't resolve them start to resolve. Diet and exercise. And I think the problem is that when we say that in America, we think health club membership and food pyramid. And that is not what I mean. You, you really should look, I promise you, at a diet that's primarily meat-based and higher in fat than it is in protein to a significant amount and very low carbohydrate because it will balance your hormone systems and your hormones are your regulators of your body. But it, I will be the first one to admit, you can do, at least many people can do, some people have very difficult to, to pull this off, but lots of people can be relatively healthy their entire life on a diet that's primarily carbohydrate-based. Right? I'll tell you what you can't do. High fat and high carb. You are killing yourself with that. Don't overdo the alcohol. Don't overdo the substances. And live a healthy life. Because it's the number one thing you can do to extend your life, including even if you're dealing with an illness. Number one comorbidity for COVID, obesity. That doesn't mean everybody that died of COVID was fat or old. Some people that looked really good, they got really sick with COVID, either died or had a really hard time with it. But I guarantee you, those people have nutritional deficiencies that they, they, they never identified. One guy, he was an Iron Man, and COVID almost killed him, and he lost you know, a bunch of muscle weight and all, and they showed this guy, and, and everybody's like, oh, my God, see, it can get you too. And then you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, 99.8% of people in his demographic would have barely knew they had it, and it hit him that hard. Shouldn't we ask why? You don't think a guy that looks like he's in really great shape can have vitamin D levels through the floor? Then you don't know anything about the, the deficiency in vitamin D epidemic in the world. You don't know anything about, well, he's outside all the time. It doesn't matter. That, and that's just one thing it could have been. For all you know, the guy went on a five-day booze bender. You don't think athletes ever do that. You don't know athletes. You know, he's off-season, not training, whatever. So he went on a five-day bender. 
shit-canned his immune system, and it happened. He get a full load, viral load hit at exactly the worst time. And that, we don't know why, but we know that the, you always play the odds so that the odds are in your favor when you can. And being healthy and a good, safe weight and taking care of yourself makes you less likely that anything will take you out. And anything that's even really bad, like if you get cancer, the guy who is taking care of himself is more likely to beat the same cancer at the same stage in the same place in his body in the same system than the one who's out of shape and overweight and got type 2 diabetes. So if you actually are concerned with your life, be concerned with your health because they are intrinsically related. My final thoughts on this is there's a lot more. Like one of the skills I always say people should do is you should be able I didn't say this today. Here's a bonus 21, right? You should know at least five plants that you can forage in your general area that you're not growing, you know, on your property. Now, that doesn't mean if they pop up there, like if blackberries one of them and you have to live with a woodland edge and there's blackberries, I'm not saying don't don't count that. I'm just saying like it's not something that you're growing and gardening. Like it's something that natively grows in your area. And I think some people are like, you know, where I live, I don't think there's five things to forage. You're wrong. And, you know, I always talk about, you know, learn one new thing about two different subjects every day. I mean, sometimes it comes to you. I had a guy here one day, and he goes, hey, you don't have pepperweed on your property? I'm like, and I know a lot about foraging. I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, it's pepperweed. I'm like, what is it? He goes, like, you can use it basically like on salads and stuff or on meats as a substitute for pepper. And he gave me a little bit. He had harvested, and I tasted it, and it tastes more like nasturtium than classic black pepper like watercress peppery or whatever. Turns out pepperweed is not a nasturtium species, but it has that same kind of bite to it. It was really good. He goes, it's all over your property. And he showed me this little strand of it, and I'm like, show me the whole plant. So he shows me. I'm like, okay, now I know what it is. Now I know what that plant is. That's another forage species. There's so much available. That, like, So that's like another thing. So my point is that you could add another 20, 30, 40, 50 skills to this. And you, you say, how do I do this? Or how, like, can I do all these things Jack said today? You can over time. You can't do them all simultaneously. But you take that number 16 out of my skills today, and you do at least one new th thing on two different subjects every day, and that's 700 a year. Now, a lot of them will probably be in the same space. There's like, you could do that with herbs and herbology. You know, your one new thing could both be herbs. For the next 10 years, you probably won't run out of things. But what you'll run out of is interest, and you'll want to learn. You're like, okay, that's enough of that for now. And really develop yourself as a human, as a person. And boy, don't forget that get into the woods at least once a month on some level. Do something in nature, because that's what you really are. And I, I, I've been hearing a lot more lately from, I don't know what I would refer to this demographic, but people that believe that the city is the right place for humans to live. I don't know what has warped your mind to believe that, and I'm not saying you shouldn't live in a city. I'm saying there are certain cities that you really shouldn't stay in right now. If you insist on being in a city, find a city that's less likely to go into complete urban decay in the next couple of years. What I'm saying is we were not biologically designed for this. And all we have to do is just look at the surface of anthropology to see that. And if you, if you look at the motivation behind developing civilization into the size of city-states and beyond... It always revolves around the desire of a small number of people to control a large number of people. That's, that's what it's always been driven by. And the only way you can stay true to what you are, I'm not saying, again, not to live communally, not to live modernly, is occasionally rewild a little bit. Be the feral human you really are. 
Stop letting the system domesticate you. With that, well, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. And the item of the day that I have for you is the Barina LED Grow Light Six Packs. They're the item of the day. Wait a minute. Didn't he just say that two weeks ago? I did. And if you bought them, good. Except I'm going to apologize a little bit. Uh, you spent two more bucks than you had to because they just went on sale yesterday. And I want to let you know they were on sale. So normally the six-pack of the two-foot Barina Lights is $69.99. It's $59.99 right now. And normally the, the six-pack of the four-foot longer Barina Lights is $109.99. And they're $99.99 right now. So they're, they're on sale for $10 bucks off. And I said today that one of the things you should do is learn to grow food indoors. Or come up with two different ways to grow food. So that could be either growing food indoors or starting plants indoors to move outdoors. Or starting plants in a garage to move outdoors. And for both of those, all three of those, you really need some more artificial lights. These lights are the bomb. Also, when you when you check out the write-up today, read the, the comments. Oki James has given another one of his great comments. I haven't gone completely through it. But it's another manufacturer, and it's the white versus kind of the, the pink-purple lights. He's been trialing them side-by-side, said they look exactly the same, and he's noticed no difference in growth. So I always make recommendations in product based on quality and value to you. If you can find the same product under a different name and it does the same thing, then you can buy You know, I try to empower people to do that type of research, and I really appreciate people like Ohi James who come along and say, hey, I did this, and that dude... A lot of the stuff I've recommended in Hydro is right from him. So definitely check out his comments. Remember, you would get all this information and more if you were on the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Daily Mail, and you can fill out one simple form, and you'll get a daily email with some bullet points and some links. That's all there is. And remember, I'm on all kinds of new social media now, and I suggest you check it out as well. I have left behind the cesspool of Facebook. Uh, only thing that goes on Twitter now is the daily updates uh, that are automated off the website. That's it. I'm on Telegram. I'm on Library. I'm on on um, Gab, I'm on MeWe, I'm on Parler. We have Telegram groups now for uh, Unloose the Goose and the Survival Podcast. I've got a new uh, permaculture regenerative agriculture group for you on Gab. All of that's available in the, the show notes today. And above all, if you become a member of the site, you help support the work we do at 18 cents an episode, get your discounts, get your money back. If you do the stuff we talked about today, you actually take action on this episode, you're going to end up buying stuff over the next year to enable yourself to do that. Use the discount codes. When you buy that, you'll get your money back, and that's a good deal. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. I, I wanted something today that kind of went with my theme that I came out of the gate with to kind of set things up, which was, you know, Steve Jobs quote, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've made mistakes on the air, and I've come back, and I've even at times made fun of myself with, like, Jack was wrong and playing the dun-dun-dun music and stuff like that. I, I admit my mistakes freely when I, when I make them. And sometimes I've, I've done some things that uh, I wasn't real proud of myself for doing, like losing my shit. Sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's warranted, and sometimes it's like I really was too hard on somebody. Um, but all I can say and all I, I can wish for anybody is I've always been me. I've always been who I really am, and I've always owned every mistake, and that is the best advice I can give anybody. Again, you, you find that the secret of success is you just keep giving, you just keep giving, you just keep giving, and if nobody's taking what you're offering either, you just haven't been doing it long enough yet, or you're not giving the right thing yet. You haven't found your gift that's the right thing to give yet, and if you keep doing it long enough, you'll find it, and people will start showing up, and people will start taking what you're giving.
And, and then in time you will find that by giving enough, you enable your own success. And the more people you help get what they want, the more of what you want you get in the end. It's, it's really true. People try to break that formula, but you can't. But what you, what you find out in it is that the secret to being able to do it long enough, one is just this dogged, stubborn determination along with enough knowledge so that you're not the fly in the window trying really hard to get out the window by flying into the window where you kill yourself. Right? So you have to marry a little bit of common sense with it. But on t once you have the common sense and once you have the knowledge and you know what you're doing is right, this dogged determination to just not quit. But the other side of it is to be authentic. Even as flawed as you may be, you know, if you improve yourself, that's great. But actually improve yourself. Don't pretend to be something you're not ever. Because the one thing I know is no matter what anybody comes up with, video of me, audio of me, anything, and brings it to my audience that I've built over the years, I'm like, Jack did this. Look what he did. He's a horrible person. You'd be like, whatever. Welcome to Tuesday. That's what authenticity is. Whatever you do build is built on who you are, and therefore it is very difficult for anybody to take it away from you. The song that typifies that is from Josh Thompson, and it's called I've Always Been Me. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Fast. My temper's just as quick. Yeah, I drive too fast. Guess that's just how I live. Learned every scar I've got Learned a lot of things the hard way No, I ain't quite been the pillar of this community But I've always been me I take the blame when it's my fault Get knocked down to stand up tall Screaming, bring it on I ain't scared I'm never gone out of my way Or acted fake to impress anyone And that's okay Sometimes I'm too proud, too loud What you get is what you see I've been calling it all From bad news to the craziest OB Defend it till I'm gone I try to do what's right Sometimes it comes out all wrong Hell, I've never been an angel And I've never claimed to be But I've always been
Be.